Glad you're here. Have a seat. Pull out your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here today. Can you remember a time that you were presented with an impossible standard? In seventh grade, there was a section of my PE class that was dedicated to physical fitness tests. You had to run the mile. You had to do a shuttle run. You had to climb a rope. You had to do some sit-ups. And you had to do the pegboard pegboard was a plank of wood that hung on the wall of the gym and it had two columns of holes and they put two wooden pegs in your hands and expected you to start at the bottom and work your way to the top pulling yourself up and then work your way back to the bottom now I've told you before that puberty hit me in some very awkward waves and it started with my face and then just kind of hung out for a while there. So I had a nice, healthy mustache, but I was very scrawny. The running part was no problem. The sit-ups were no problem. But I knew as I stood there and looked at that pegboard, there is no way that I'm going to be able to do this. My best hope is to just do one more peg than the person in front of me. That's the best that I can do because this was an impossible standard. So we've been in the gospel of Mark. We've seen John the Baptist prepare the way for Jesus. We've seen Jesus baptized, tempted, and begin his ministry. And today we're going to see him call his very first disciples. And as he calls them, he is going to present to them an impossible standard. And we're going to see him issue a very simple invitation. Follow me. He is still offering this invitation to people. And hopefully there has been a moment in your life where you have heard that invitation from Jesus, follow me. It could have come in a moment of prayer. It could have come by reading the scripture. It could have come from hearing the story and testimony of a friend. But he's still issuing this call, follow me, and still holding us to an impossible standard. There are a few things I would love for you to write down this morning as we interact with the scripture together. The first one you see in your listening guide, a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. It says in verse 16 of Mark chapter one, passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired servants and followed him. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. It says in verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Now, Jesus was not the only rabbi in first century Israel that had followers. There were many rabbis, but he was unique among them. 
But following a rabbi was about learning, it was about loyalty, and it was about life. It was about learning. Uh, A disciple is one, very simply, who learns from a master or a teacher. This teacher has the information that I am looking for. This teacher has a theological perspective that I am interested in, and so I follow, and by following, I learn. Now, everyone is a disciple. Every person in this room is a disciple. Every person that you work with is a disciple. Every person that lives in your apartment or on your street is a disciple. The question is, is who is our master? Who is our teacher? Hillary Clinton has disciples. Donald Trump has disciples. Oprah has disciples. James Harden has disciples. LeBron James has disciples. Everyone is a disciple and everyone has a master. Everyone has a teacher. The question for us as followers of Jesus today is how many schools am I enrolled in? In five semesters, I went to four universities. That's a spiritual gift. <laughs> but as we think about our discipleship, we, we put that to shame. We have so many different teachers. We have so many different masters. We're enrolled in so many different schools. Who are you learning from? Because following Jesus is not about electives. It's not about, I take the Jesus course for my spirituality. I take the Jesus course for my religion. I take the Jesus course for my biblical thinking. And I take my boss's course for business. And I... I take my parents' course for money management. When we come to follow Jesus, he's not just one of many teachers. He becomes our teacher for everything. Following Jesus is about learning. It's also about loyalty. See, a normal rabbi-student relationship, the student was loyal to the law. They followed that rabbi because they believed in the rabbis take on the Old Testament law, and they were interested in that. We see this with the Apostle Paul, who you remember before they called him Paul, he was known as Saul, and he was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he was very anti-following Jesus. But he studied underneath a teacher named Gamaliel. And in Acts chapter 5, we see Gamaliel have a very hands-off approach to those original followers of Jesus. Jesus ascends up into heaven and his followers, his original disciples, they take the mission seriously and they begin to proclaim his name as the way to God. And this was offensive to the teachers of that Old Testament law. And so those original disciples were arrested and Gamaliel said to the rest of the religious leaders, listen, don't worry about this. Let just, let's just let them be because if this is real and this is of God, then we don't want to be fighting against it. But if this is just, uh, just a few zealous people following a false teacher, this is eventually going to burn out. This is not the first time that we've seen this kind of hysteria around a teacher. And so he very, had a very hands-off approach, but we see his disciple, Paul, who studied at his feet, uh, rejecting that philosophy. Paul, did, uh, known as Saul, did not have a hands-off approach to those original followers of Jesus. In fact, he persecuted them. He sought them out to put them into prison. So his loyalty was not to his rabbi, it was to the law. But in Jesus, we see something totally different. He says, I am the fulfillment of the law. 
The law points to me. The temple points to me. The Sabbath points to me. And he demands loyalty from his disciples. We see this in Luke chapter 14. We see some disqualifications of being a disciple. He says, if you do not hate your family and your own life, you are disqualified as a disciple. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he just goes for the jugular of our loyalties. What is he saying? He's saying, if you come to a moment in your life where your parents are influencing you in one direction, but Jesus is calling you in another direction, where does your loyalty lie? If your wife is asking you of this, but Jesus is asking something else of you, where does your loyalty lie? If your children are demanding, demanding, demanding from you, but Jesus says, no, I want you to use your resources for generosity towards God's people, where does your loyalty lie? Some of us may say, well, of course my loyalty is with Jesus. I don't have a close relationship with my parents and I haven't talked to my brother in a few years and I'm not married and I don't have kids. And so of course all of my loyalty goes to Jesus. But he says, but if you come to a moment where you are telling you go to the right, but Jesus is saying, no, go to the left. Where will your loyalty be? Will your loyalty be with yourself? and what you think and what you feel and your perspective, or will your loyalty be to Jesus, your master and teacher? He says, we're also disqualified being a disciple if we don't bear our own cross. Verse 27, Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now at the time that Jesus is saying these words, you would not have said the word cross in public. It would have been impolite. You know, I'm interested this morning, and I'm not going to ask for a a show of hands, but I I am interested. How many of us have cross tattoos somewhere on us? An arm, on a back, maybe you've got a sleeve, and somewhere on there is a cross tattoo. I'm guessing that there are quite a few. In fact, uh, after the first service, I had some people coming up and showing me their tattoos, and and so I am interested. But if if you were around hearing Jesus say these words, the, the thought of putting a cross permanently on your body would have been unthinkable. Maybe you don't have a tattoo, but you're wearing a cross necklace or you have some cross earrings and you're still living in the 80s or uh, <laughs> you have something back at home. That would have been unimaginable to those who are hearing Jesus say that we have to bear our own cross because crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, but it was perfected by the Romans. And death was not the final goal or death was the final goal of crucifixion, but it was not the first goal of crucifixion. The first goal was for you to linger there. It was not uncommon for a person that they were crucifying to hang there for days, die very slowly. That was their first goal, to make you suffer, to make you linger. Their second goal was to put you out for display. You've maybe heard of the movie Spartacus. There was a real life Spartacus and he led a real life revolt 
against the Roman Empire. And in the final battle of his life, 6,000 of his companions were arrested. The Roman army crucified every single one of them, but instead of crucifying them in just one spot, they put them out for display. So they picked a major highway. And for 130 miles on that highway, every 40 yards was another person dying on a cross. Because their second goal was to humiliate you, put you onto display. Their third goal was to degrade. They wanted to make you feel less than human. They were exercising their dominion over you in the same way that we would exercise dominion over an animal. And then their final goal, when all those others had been accomplished, was to kill you. And Jesus says, if you are not willing to bear your own cross, you're disqualified from being a disciple. He also says that if you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be a disciple. Verse 33, Luke 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To renounce means to say, this thing has no claim on me and I have no claim on it. So Jesus would say, unless you and I are willing to look at all that we have and hold it open-handed, Meaning this house that I have, it has no claim on me and I have no claim on it. I hold it open-handed. This neighborhood that I live in, it has no claim on me and I have no claim on it. I hold it open-handed. This car that I have and I love or hate, you know, it, it has no claim on me and I have no claim on it. I hold it open-handed. Someone please take it. I would like a new one, actually. <laughs> my TV, my season tickets... My job, he says, unless you're willing to say everything that I have, I hold open handed and God is willing to come and put things into my hands or take them out of my hands. It does not matter to me. I renounce all of my things. It has no claim on me and I have no claim on it. Then we are not qualified to be his disciples. There's a loyalty that he demands of us and following Jesus is also about life. If you followed a, a rabbi, you didn't just go and take their class. You didn't show up on Tuesdays at 930 to learn for an hour and then go about your regular duties. Wherever the rabbi went, you went. Whatever the rabbi did, you did. It was about life. Jesus takes us to another level. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. This is will be a familiar story to some. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The rich young man, he came to Jesus for advice and Jesus wanted his life. Jesus is not your life coach. He is not a consultant to help you get from point A to point B. He demands our lives. 
Second thing I want you to remember this morning, a disciple is made by Jesus. Is made by Jesus. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, traditionally, it was a student who would seek out the rabbi. Here, it's different. The rabbi seeks out the student, but normally the student would identify a teacher that they wanted to learn from, that they wanted to follow, and they would go and they would ask for permission. Can, uh, would you accept me as one of your students? And seeking out a rabbi was a resume builder. It was a reputation enhancer. It was a way for that student to improve themselves. But this invitation that Jesus is offering to Peter and Andrew and James and John is not about self-improvement. Jesus is going to make them into something new. Now, there's always a temptation for us to blend following Jesus with self-improvement because there is some crossover. Following Jesus will make you a better person. It will make you a better husband. It will make you a better wife. It will make you a better employee, a better son or daughter, friend. So there is some crossover. And historically, people have been blending the two, following Jesus and self-improvement. In the 1950s, there was a pastor in Manhattan, a famous church there. His name was Norman Vincent Peale. And he wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. It's a very popular book. It was in its day a a bestseller, and it's still popular today. If you go onto amazon.com and you search the power of, it's one of the first results, the power of positive thinking. And that's exactly what this is. It's a blend of truth about Jesus and life of faith and self-improvement. And it makes sense how we get there. We see it all around, right? Because we all have goals, and most of those goals start with the word better. We want a better job so we can have a better apartment, so we can have a better home, and we want a better dating pool. We feel frustrated by our current dating pool. They are all fives, and we want sevens. Better. We want a better neighborhood that that apartment is in. We want a better neighborhood where our home will be in. We just want better everything. We have goals. And then we know that God has power. He can do anything that he wants. He's able to help us accomplish all of those goals. And then on top of that, we know that he loves us. He cares for us. He knows us by name. He knows what's on our heart. So what happens when you jam those three things together? I have goals. God loves me. Therefore, in my thinking, God loves my goals. And he has the power to help me accomplish those goals. But what happens when we bring those things together is we go to follow our goals and we have Jesus following us to help us accomplish those goals. But that's not what happens here on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says to those four men, listen, you yield all of your goals to my goals. You sign over all of your goals to accomplish My goals. I mean, look at what James and John had to give up. Verse 19. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. First, they had to give up a daily relationship with their father Zebedee. 
He's mentioned twice in just this one verse, which tells us he was important in James and John's life. They have to give up a daily relationship. Some of you men are like, that's fine. I don't live near my dad. I talk to my mom. She's like the gatekeeper of all of the news that's going on. And so that would not be hard. But a lot of you ladies, you talk to your mom every single day. You're texting her right now. And she's sitting next to you. You call in the morning to check in. You call in the afternoon. And you call right before bed. And then you text 50 times in between. And so imagine saying, I, I, I would give up that daily relationship. That's what James and John had to do. They had to give up their boat. Some of us, I don't care what Jesus asked for me. I'm not giving up my boat. Right? But boat for them was not a recreational toy. It was, it was security for the present and security for the future. As long as they had that boat, They could feed themselves. They could feed their family. As long as they had that boat, they could catch fish. They could sell those fish, give their families the things that they need. That was security that they had to give up. And they had to give up their hired servants. I mean, think about how amazing you would feel. Think about how high up the ladder you would feel in this world if you just had servants. I don't want to do my laundry today. You do it. I don't want to run to the store. You do it. To have that, how amazing it would feel to have those hired servants and then to walk away from them. They had to give up all these things. And poor Simon, Simon had to give up his own name. It says in John chapter one, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So imagine your name is Zach this morning. I don't know if we have any Zachs, but if you were born in the 90s and you got the name Zach, you're loving that because Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell, like you're, you've been living good on the name Zach all these years and... Someone comes and says, you've been Zach and now you're Bob. And you're like, I don't want to be Bob. Like, no disrespect to Bob, but my name is Zach. And Jesus says, I don't care. Your name is Bob now. And that's how I'm going to refer to you. And then you have some friends who are like, you know, we feel bad about him having to give up his name, Zach. So we're going to call him Zach, Bob, Simon, Peter. We're just going to put the two things together. I mean, it seems funny to us, but imagine what that would be like. This is who you've been your entire life. And Jesus says, everything is up for grabs. Even the thing that is most personal to you. When you follow me, everything is on the table. Even your name. Because being a disciple is about making myself available to Jesus to be remade however he wants to remake me. And the third thing I want you to see, a disciple of Jesus brings others in to Jesus. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. 
Now, it's common to think that Jesus is just being clever here, just using some wordplay, but that phrase, fishers of men, there was some historic and prophetic meaning to interpret this phrase, fishers of men, only as a play on words appropriate to the situation is to fail to appreciate its biblical background. We see in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, generations before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, it says, behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. See, Jesus invited them into something bigger than lesson listening. It was an invitation into nothing less than God's divine plan. And the disciples, they understood this. They understood the bigger picture, and we can see this in their preaching. Acts chapter 2 is the very first sermon of the very first gathering of what we now know as Christians. And Peter begins to preach about Jesus, but his message about Jesus does not start with Jesus. It does not start with Bethlehem. It starts with a prophecy from the minor prophet Joel. And then he goes backwards into Israel's history to the Psalms. And then he goes backwards even further back to King David of whom Jesus and Jesus's family that he was born into were descendants. We see the same thing in Acts chapter seven with one of the first converts, one of the first recipients of the gospel of Christ, Stephen. Stephen took the commands of Jesus seriously and he began to preach the message and his message didn't begin with Jesus either. It began with Israel's forefather, Abraham, and his message about Jesus started with the tracing of God's story of redemption through what we know as the Old Testament. And he shows them this story that's been so dear to us of God's redemptive history, starting with our forefather and leading us into Egypt and into the land of promise and then through all of the kings, both good and bad, and then into a time of great temptation and idolatry for us. And even our forefathers and ancestors spending some time in Babylon and Assyria captive. All of that story is leading to this moment with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. Because they understood being a disciple of Jesus just is not about my personal experience. My personal experience matters very much, but my personal experience with Jesus and your personal experience takes place in a very big story that God is writing and has been writing for a long time. And what a disciple does is a disciple says, I want to take my place in this redemptive story and I want to help other people take their place because this isn't just about me and my experience. If I truly am a disciple, that discipleship is going to be reflected in someone else's discipleship. I'm going to bring someone along. In college, there was a a friend of mine who was, was older than me, already married and had kids. He was an evangelist. That's not really a vocation anymore, but an evangelist 15 years ago would travel around church to church and would preach in church for a week and then move on to the next church and do this kind of ministry. And he knew that I wanted to be a minister and, and he went to my church. And so he took me up underneath his wing. And whenever he was preaching at a church within just a few hours of my hometown, he would call me and say, why don't you ride there with me? And so I would hop in his van, not a minivan. He had one of those full size vans because I guess that's a stereo 
stereotype he was trying to live up to. And, and so we would get in his van and we would drive to these churches. And sometimes I would just sit and I would listen to him preach and I would watch the way that he would preach. And I would listen to the stories he would tell. And I would watch how he would open up the scripture. And I would watch how he would share the gospel and watch how he would talk to people before and after the service, just taking it all in. Sometimes we would show up at that church and he would say, you know, I want you actually to help me tonight. Why don't you tell uh, the story of how you became a, a Christian and, and a follower of Jesus? And other times he would say, why don't you just tell, uh, take a few minutes to tell people about what God's doing in your life right now. He was just bringing me along. But it wasn't just spiritual stuff. He'd bring me along for all kinds of things. Like I think he wanted to get in shape and so he joined a gym and he's like, hey, why don't you join the gym too and we can work out together. I think he just wanted a ride to the gym because I always had to pick him up. (laughs) We would go, we'd work out. And before we'd leave for the gym, I'd watch the way he interacted with his wife, watch the way he loved his kids, watch how he responded when he would go back into the house. He'd invite me over for really, I think manual labor. I think mostly he just wanted a servant because uh, one year he asked me to come over and put Christmas lights up with him. And by with him, it meant I was on the roof and he was in the yard telling me what to do, telling stories. But I'm watching him love his family and lead his family just along for the ride. If you are a disciple of Jesus today, whether you've been a disciple for a long time or today's the very first day, you should immediately look around and say, who can I bring along? You don't have to be a Bible study expert, although that would be great. What you know now, you can share now. And we keep learning and we keep sharing. We keep passing over more and more loyalty to Jesus and we keep sharing. We hand him our whole lives in an ever-increasing way and we keep sharing, bringing someone along. Because Jesus would tell us today, you can't be a disciple unless you are fishing for men. You can't be a disciple unless you're saying, I'm willing to take my place and the story that God has written and is writing, and I wanna help other people take their places. But we hear all these things, and I don't know how you're feeling this morning, but I feel like I'm standing there looking at that pegboard, going, there is no way that I can live up to this. You may be feeling the same way Jesus' original disciples felt when they watched that rich young man turn away sorrowful because it says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? What they're saying is if that guy who has his act together, who came to you for advice is not qualified to be a disciple, then what chance is there for regular people like us? Who then can be saved? They asked. And it says, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You and I are looking at that pegboard today thinking there's no way I can pull myself up to the standard that Jesus expects of me. I can't hold myself together. I don't have enough willpower. I've not... Uh, had enough experience. I have tried and I have failed. Even I feel guilty right now because I promised I would never do that thing. And I've done that thing again. There is no way that I can get to the top and I can get to the bottom. So what do we do when we know that it's impossible? Well, we 
go, well, maybe the standard isn't as high as everybody has given me the impression. Maybe I just have to get a little way up there and not worry about coming down. Or maybe the standard is just to be one peg better than the person in front of me. And I know I'm a little bit more spiritually mature than this person standing next to me. So I'm hoping maybe Jesus will look at them and compared to them, I will look great. But What the scripture is telling us today is, no, the standard is high. In fact, it is so high. It is impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus is calling you away from your boat and your nets this morning. And he's saying, I already know it's impossible. But I can make it possible. The one who calls you is the one who will enable you. The standard is high. And by the grace and power of Jesus, in his grace and power alone, we can live up to it. Let's pray. Why don't you take a second spirit of prayer and reflection Ask God, God, is there any specific way that you want me to practice what I've heard this morning? After all that we've experienced this morning, what's my next step? Jesus, you said that if we love you, we'll keep your commands. And so help us, help us. We need you, Jesus' name, amen.